want to begin today by telling you a story. It's a story written by Robert Louis Stevenson. A story that features a doctor, medical doctor, who lived during the 1800s in London. This doctor is the epitome of the Victorian gentleman. His patient clientele is composed of only London's most rich and famous, uh, the nobility, the community leaders, the highbrow of London, all go to see this doctor. This doctor is invited to all the right parties. He is known in all the right circles. He's the perfect picture of Victorian etiquette. He is, through and through, a highly respected man. He lives in a beautiful home where he entertains his guests, but he would never dream of taking his guests downstairs into his basement. Because in the basement was something stranger, uh, something darker. In his basement was a laboratory. And when this doctor was alone, he would spend hours in this laboratory, mixing potions and chemicals, focusing his exper experiments on creating one elixir, an elixir that was meant not to cure any kind of disease or help with any ailment, but to do something far more ominous, something far stranger. He was trying to create an elixir to change and transform the human personality. When finally perfecting this elixir, he took it himself. And that's when the story takes a horrific twist. Because this elixir works, and the doctor is completely transformed. He's no longer the upright Victorian gentleman he once was. He's the opposite. He becomes a murderer. He's the lowest of the low. He lives along London's river district, hiding in the shadows, ready to attack anyone who might be roaming the streets at night. At one point in the story, he beats an old man to death, a member of parliament. He's described as an undefinably ugly man, as if deformed. He is evil, he is wicked, he is downright rotten. The title of this story, you may have guessed it if you're familiar with it, is the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Throughout the story, no one knows that there is this blending of the two men. Uh, they don't know that this distinguished gentleman, Dr. Jekyll, is actually also the wicked and murderous Mr. Hyde. Until the end, everyone else in the story assumes that they're two different people. After all, they're so opposites. How can this gentleman also be a murderer? Even Dr. Jekyll, when not thinking clearly, cannot fully come to grips that he is also Mr. Hyde. And we find out this, that this elixir is actually a timed elixir, and so the effects wear off after a time. Dr. Jekyll takes the elixir, and after some time, after turning into Mr. Hyde, he turns back into Dr. Jekyll. And the horror of the story reaches a climax when the elixir starts to wear off and Mr. Hyde enters Dr. Jekyll's house. Mr. Hyde is beginning to transition back into Dr. Jekyll and he catches a glimpse of himself in a full body mirror. And he still has the body of Mr. Hyde but the eyes of Dr. Jekyll. And as he looks in the mirror, he sees the body of Mr. Hyde with the mind of Dr. Jekyll. And he utters these words. This too is myself. Tonight we're going to be in Romans chapter 7. And we're going to look at a passage that is a full body mirror into our souls. And as we look into this mirror, we're going to see something that is unpleasant about ourselves. Something that you may know and that th there is a side of us 
that is wicked, sinful. But as you look at that side, you have to admit, this too is myself. That as Christians, we have the ability to play the part of Dr. Jekyll one moment and the ability to play the part of Mr. Hyde the next. And we don't need any potion or elixir. This dual personality is simply who you are as a Christian. Romans chapter 7. We're going to be in verses 14 to 25. Let's read it. Starting in verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I do... When I, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Can you hear the struggle? Can you hear the anguish? Can you hear the pain? Can you feel the frustration? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. In chapter 7, we've been learning that even though we're not saved by obeying the Old Testament law, the Old Testament law is good. Verse 12, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Even though you're not saved by obeying the law, but by Christ alone, don't throw out the Old Testament. Don't rip it out of your Bibles and throw it out the window. It's good, it's instructive, it's helpful. That's why we read the Old Testament. That's why we read the Old Testament for our quiet times. That's why we are happy to hear sermons about the Old Testament, like we're doing in Crossroads now. The law is good. And continuing that thought about how the law is good, Paul moves on to verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So did the law bring about Paul's spiritual death? Is it because of the law that sinners are condemned? No, the law is holy, righteous, and good. So what's the problem? Listen to Paul. It was sin. The problem wasn't a bad law. The problem is a bad you. The law only shows sin's true colors. Now, the law only shows sin as a direct violation of God's law. The law calls sin, sin. Keep reading in verse 13. In order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. The law unmasks sin and shows it for what it really is, rebellion against God, a breaking of his commandments. The law is a great searchlight that is shined on sin to show it for what it is, to show it in vivid and defined, precise colors. 
so that there's no mistake that this sin is bad. As Paul says at the end of this verse, through the commandment, sin might become sinful beyond measure, or in the NASB, utterly sinful. The law only shows you how bad your sin is, how big your problem is. When you read the commandments of the Old Testament, understand that you are looking into an x-ray. Let's say that you're horsing around with your roommates, and you fall down, and you break your arm, and it hurts, and you're like, man, I think I, think I broke it. You go to the doctors, you get an x-ray, the doctor holds up the x-ray and says, whoa, you shattered your arm in three different places. You see, the law shows you how bad your sin is. It shows you your sin in precise detail, that it is nothing less than an affront and a rebellion against a holy God worthy of death. So as Paul continues to clarify that the law is good, and we're the ones who are bad, we get into our passage, this mirror that shows us the real problem, our sin. Now, there's a big debate about this passage that we're about to dive into. The debate is, is this passage describing a Christian or a non-Christian? Is this pre-conversion or post-conversion? Is Paul talking about himself in the current time as a Christian, or is he looking back and reminiscing about his time as a non-Christian? Well, at the outset, let me say that both views are viable. There's evidence on both sides. You're not a heretic if you take one view or the other. There's, uh, you're not going to believe in a different gospel if you take a, a different view than other Christians. Uh, with that being said, I take the, the side that this is referring to a believer, that this is referring to a Christian, and this is the majority view. But some will say that this is actually an unbeliever, that Paul is speaking as an unconverted Jew before his life in Christ. And their main argument surrounds the very first verse, verse 14, which they believe is something of a topic sentence that sets the tone for the rest of the passage. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh sold under sin. There's that language of being sold under, slave language. It personifies sin as a slave master. And you, seeing this language of sin as being a slave master should make the sirens go off in your head because you just read and you just went through chapter 6 which talked about how we are no longer slaves to sin and that we've been set free from sin. Chapter 6, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And then look down at verse 17 of chapter 6. But thanks be to God that you were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Hasn't Paul just said in chapter 6 that we are free from sin? So why is he using this slave language again? Well, one important verse to note is chapter 6, verse 12. Look there. Paul also said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't let sin reign. Implication, sin can still reign. Not permanently, And not ultimately, but sin can still have some kind of mastery, some kind of enslavement over even the believer. So to be set free from sin in chapter 6 means that we're set free from sin as an absolute tyrant, as an absolute slave master who owns us. Chapter 6 was all about how sin no longer owns us, that Jesus owns us, that we're his slave, but... As we see here, we can still let sin reign in our bodies in a lesser and in a temporary way. So that's my response to those who say that chapter 7 refers to Paul as an unbeliever. Uh, Now let me give you some positive reasons why I do believe that this is a believer. First of all, Paul displays a desire to do God's will. There's a desire to do God's will. Verse 16 
I agree with the law that it is good. Verse 18, for I have a desire to do what is right. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God. Paul agrees with the law, even delighting in it, and says that he wants to do what is right. He wants to obey the law, he wants to honor it, he wants to keep it perfectly. That is characteristic of a Christian, one who has been born again, one who no longer has a heart of stone but a heart of flesh, a heart that now loves God and wants to obey him. Second argument for this being a believer, Paul also displays a hatred of sin. He has a hatred of sin. Verse 15, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, I do what I do not want. Paul doesn't want to sin. In fact, he hates it. Throughout this passage, you can hear his frustration, his anguish, even his disgust with his own sin. That sounds like a Christian. Only a believer hates their sin. Third, Paul's description of unbelievers in other passages in Romans is drastically different than chapter 7. So he's talked about non-Christians before, and his description sounds very different than what we have here. Remember chapter 3? As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Think, then think all the way back to chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And then verse 32 of chapter 1, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Does that sound like the struggle that we see in chapter 7? Unbelievers don't desire to do God's will, like in verse 16. Instead, they turn aside and they don't seek for God. Unbelievers don't hate sin, like in verse 15. Instead, they indulge in it and give approval to those who practice it. Unbelievers don't delight in the law, as in verse 22. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so when you hold up Paul in Romans chapter 7, next to these descriptions of unbelievers, you don't have a match. Argument number four why this is a believer, is the distinction between Paul and his flesh. Uh, there's a duality going on. There's a distinction between himself and his flesh. Verse 17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. There's a distinction, there's a difference, and there's a struggle between Paul as a new creation in Christ and his flesh. Now, the flesh there, you really could replace it with sin nature. That's what it's talking about there, his, his propensity, his tendency to sin. A non-Christian doesn't struggle between sinning and pleasing God. Now, sure, non-Christians can struggle between right and wrong. Non-Christians may want to do what is right, and many of them do. But they want to do right in order to be a better person. Uh, they want to do right in order to be a better person to the people around them. They want to do right to feel better about themselves. They want to do right to have a clear conscience. They want to do right to not cause trouble. But no non-Christian is doing battle to do what is right in order to please God. Because they don't believe in him. And they don't love him. But here in chapter 7, we see a man struggling, battling against sin in a Godward direction, battling to please God, which is characteristic of a Christian. And then fifth, the fifth argument for why chapter 7 refers to a believer is that there is a chronological flow to this chapter. This section has a clear chronological flow from Paul's past to his present, to his future. We see his past in verses 7 to 13, his present in verses 14 to 23, our passage, and then his future in verses 24 
to 25. And the verb tenses are consistent with each section, past, present, and future. In the section before, the passage that Shihong preached on last week, it's all past tense, where Paul talks about how he died to the law. Nine past tense verbs are used. And the section that we're in today, it's all in the present tense, over 20 present tense verbs. So Paul is deliberately using the present tense verb. It's sustained and it's emphatic. Paul is underscoring, this is me now. This is me presently. This is me as a Christian. And then at the end of the passage, verse 24, notice the change from the present to the future tense. Wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death. From past to present to future, chapter 7 has a clear chronological flow. In the past, I died to the law. Today, in the present, I struggle with sin. And in the future, Jesus Christ will deliver me once and for all from this body of sin. So, uh, these are the arguments for why I believe we're dealing with a Christian here, uh, which means that this passage is intensely personal for each and every Christian in this room today. That there's application for you if you are in Christ in this passage. Who is this divided man that we see in this chapter? It's a believer. It's you. And it's me. This passage is that mirror. We look into it and we say, this too is myself. So let's jump into it. First, we're going to see the struggle with sin, verses 14 to 20. Let's see Paul discuss the struggle with sin, verses 14 to 20. You ever feel like spiritually you have schizophrenic multiple personality disorder? A spiritual Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of situation where you come to do your quiet times. It's a sweet time fellowshipping with the Lord. And you come to GOC, you sing, and you sing passionately. And you have meetups with people. You talk about the Lord, and you love it. You talk about your sin and how much you hate your sin. And you genuinely want to weed it out of your life. And you genuinely ask for prayer and accountability. And you're, you're doing well spiritually. You're loving the Lord and walking closely with him. But then that night, your parents call you. And they say something. And you blow up at them. But then your roommate does that thing that you just hate. And you get annoyed and bittered, impatient in your heart. But then you hear that juiciest morsel of gossip. And you don't even think about it. You just pass that bad boy on. But then you find yourself searching on the internet for things that you know are bad. And you shouldn't be looking at you know it's wrong, and then afterwards you feel so horrible and you hate what you did. What's going on? This is the struggle. This is the struggle. Let's read about it. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. Again, in clarifying his position on the law, the law is not bad. The law is spiritual. That is, it is of divine origin. It's written by the Holy Spirit. It's helpful to our spiritual lives. But here's the problem. I am of flesh. Again, the word flesh, while sometimes can refer to our physical body, sometimes it refers to our arms and legs and fingers and toes and head and torso, there's a darker side of the word flesh. There's a darker usage of the word flesh, and it refers to our sin nature. It refers to our tendency, our bent 
towards sin, our leaning towards sin. There's a part of us that still likes sin, even though this is contrary to the life that God has called us to. And this part of us is so strong that verse 14 says we are sold under sin. Chapter 6, verses 7 to 8, we are set free from sin. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are emancipated from sin. But the slave master says, come on back and get to work. And sometimes in our weakness, we go back and we obey our old master. And that's what verse 15 is talking about. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I don't understand. Bewilderment, confusion. What's the matter with me? Why do I think like that? Why would I say that? Why would I blow up like that? Why would I watch that? I want to do what's right and what honors the Lord, but I don't do it. I know what's wrong and dishonoring to the Lord, and I hate it, but I still find myself doing it. GOC, can you relate to this? I can relate to this so well. In my prayers, expressing to God how much I love him and how much I want to obey him. And I'm as genuine as I can be. And then talking to my friends uh, and talking about certain sin in my life and how I want to get it out of my life. Uh, Talking to Linda about my sin and saying, I hate this sin. Help me, keep me accountable, let me get rid of it, and I'm as genuine as I can be. But later that day, sometimes not much later, I fall. Sometimes I fall hard. Uh, Don't don't misunderstand, guys. This this passage is as much for you as it is for me. Uh, Just because I'm the one behind the pulpit doesn't mean that I've graduated Romans 7. I feel this. This is me too. I struggle with sin in a great, great way. What is going on here? What is going on with the struggle? R.C. Sproul explains it so clearly. He writes, we are creatures with mixed desires. We're never left with only one desire working in our hearts or our minds. The whole business of making choices is a very complex thing. That complexity is intensified by the fact that we have several desires coexisting in our hearts at any given moment. That's the dilemma that I face, and that's the dilemma that you face. We are creatures of mixed desires, and every choice we make, whether to sin or to do what is right, is a complex decision, a a competition, a colliding of desires. Part of us wants to choose God, and a part of us wants to choose sin. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. Remember, Paul is still interested in proving his point that the law is good. Here he says that by the very nature of what I'm doing here, I show that the law is good. Because I see what I'm doing when I sin, and I know it's wrong. I know that I'm wrong and the law is right. I'm bad, the law is good. I don't want to sin. I want to obey the law because it's good. The law is holy, righteous, and good, so why can't I obey it? Verse 17 explains more. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Hmm. That's interesting. Is Paul saying, not me, not on me. Is he saying that he's not responsible for his own sin? Well, let me give you an illustration. An illustration of an anonymous three-year-old who's sitting at home with his daddy and is coloring with his markers. He gets a hold of one of daddy's Romans commentaries. And he's about to mark it up. He's holding the marker. He's going to mark it up. He looks at Daddy. And Daddy says, Son, 
Don't mark up that commentary. Those commentaries are expensive. Romans 7 is super hard. I need that commentary. Don't mark it up. And this three-year-old looks his daddy straight in the eye, laughing, marks it all up. I say, okay, you're going to be punished. And the three-year-old says, Father, it is not I who do it, but sin dwells within me. Yeah, you're still getting punished because the sin is still a part of you. This is still you committing the sin. It doesn't mean that you're not responsible. It doesn't mean that you're not accountable. You're still the sinner. What Paul is doing in verse 17 is that he's personifying sin. Sin is, a pers- sin is like a person dwelling in your heart, and this person is taking over. He's convincing you, compelling you to do what is wrong, like a slave master. So really what we're seeing is just an outworking of verse 14, being sold under sin. You see, we want to think that we're masters of our own lives, that we got this, we're in control, that we can stop whenever we want to, that we can live Christ-like whenever we want to, that we are in control. But here we see something different. There is a part of us, a dark side of us, a sin nature that is strong. And that sin is going to come out because this part of us is like a slave master. And he's going he's to grab our body and he's going to try his best to control us. You may have a strong desire to do what is right, and you will if you are in Christ. But sometimes the power of sin is stronger yet. And sometimes sin will prevail. The flesh, your sin nature, will win. Why does our sin nature win so often? Why do we so often lose this arm wrestling match? Verse 18, nothing good dwells in my flesh. It's because your sin nature is strong. It's wicked through and through. This is what you're up against. That you're up against something where nothing good dwells, a fully dark, a fully evil nature that's a result of the fall and lives right there in your heart. And then verses 19 to 20 are given to underscore and emphasize the struggle. Now, verse 19 is basically a restatement of verse 15 where Paul doesn't do the good that he wants to do and keeps on doing the evil that he hates, again, emphasizing it. And then verse 20 is a restatement of verse 17. It's not I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Again, not making an excuse, not saying you're not responsible, but emphasizing that the dominating and overwhelming power of sin can sometimes win in the believer's heart. So this is the struggle. This is our first point. And even here, I think we can get some application. First of all, these verses are a call to be open and honest about our sin. Uh, This is a call to be transparent about our sin. Look at Paul. He puts his heart on the table for everybody to see. He lays it bare, raw, ruthlessly honest in his struggle. What about us? Are we honest about our struggle like Paul? A lot of the talks about the weaknesses of GOC and even criticism of GOC have their way of coming to me. And I'm happy to hear them, happy to hear about where we're weak and where we need to grow. And way up there on the list, uh, one of the most frequent criticisms of our ministry uh, that I hear is that we are not very transparent, uh, that we are not very open about our sin, uh, that we tend to play a part and be hypocritical and show that we are more godly than we really are to pretend like we have it all together. Uh, And I think this manifests itself in different ways. It manifests itself in upperclassmen 
feeling some kind of pressure. I'm a junior now. I'm a senior now. I got to portray like I have it all together because I'm, I'm the example now. I think it manifests itself in our small group leaders. I'm a leader now. I've, I've got to be a, a good example. Now, being a good example doesn't mean that you, you hide all your sin. You know, it's not like when you're expecting company and you go into your room and get all your clothes on the floor and shove it into the closet. Look at my, look at my clean room. Now, that's not being a good example. Being a good example as a leader is genuinely pursuing Christ-likeness, not pretending. And being a, an example means that when you sin, you're honest about it. You talk about it. And you are exemplary in your repentance. And you are exemplary in your confession to God. And you are exemplary in your softness and sensitivity to sin. Uh, speaking of acting fake, John Piper writes, John Piper don't like fake people. This is what he says. Nobody should want to live this way or settle to live this way. That's not the point. The point is, when you do live this way, this is not the Christian response. No lying, no hypocrisy, no posing, no vaunted perfectionism. Lord, deliver us from a church like that, with its pasted smiles and chipper superficiality and blindness to our own failures and consequent quickness to judge others. God, give us the honesty and candor and humility of the Apostle Paul. That's my hope and prayer for, the, for GOC as well. Uh, not a ministry of pasted-on smiles, but a ministry of honesty and transparency. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. Let's talk about our sin so that we can deal with it, so that we can lay it at the foot of the cross and be reminded of the gospel, so that we can run this Christian race together as a ministry. And let's be open and honest, not with everybody. You know, take it easy. You don't need to, to confess your sin to everybody you meet at GOC, but, but find a trusted friend. Start with one. Start with one. Maybe it's someone in your small group, someone that you can be brutally honest with about your sin so that you can deal with it. That's the first application of point one. The second one, second application is that we must fight. If there's a struggle, that means you fight. You see, this passage is not a description just of how we struggle, but it's also how we can persevere, how we can press on, how we can win the fight. It's hard, it's painful, but we must not let sin reign in our bodies, as chapter 6, verse 12 says. So this passage, while admitting that this war is raging, is not a resignation to your sin. This passage is not giving up. This passage is not, well, this is just who I am. I'm just Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, so I'm not going to do anything about my sin. To finish off the R.C. Sprawl quote, he writes, this is why the secret of sanctification is to develop within our hearts a growing intensity of desire to please God, to be obedient to Christ. This is why we are called to fill our minds with the word of God, that we might know more of the loveliness of God, the majesty of God, the sweetness and excellency of Christ. There is a path to victory. The battle is in the mind. The battle is in the heart. It's a battle of desires. And so being in the word and doing whatever you can to cultivate your desire for God to make that desire stronger will give you greater success in defeating the desire of the flesh. In running the Christian race, we're going to fall. And sometimes we just stumble a little bit. Sometimes we stub our toe but sometimes we straight up fall down and eat some dirt. The important thing is that we get back up by the grace of God. The third application here is that this is an encouragement. Uh, this should be an encouragement. If you're fighting as a Christian, 
That's normal. And I hope that this is encouraging to you, that there's nothing wrong with you. The Apostle Paul himself struggled. Uh, I've had various people come up to me and essentially say the same thing. I think I'm a Christian, but I'm struggling with this sin. And, and I've, I did it again. So I, I don't know if I can be a Christian and still wrestle with this. I don't know if I can be a Christian and, and still be dealing with this. How do I know if I'm really a Christian? And I don't want to give any false assurance, and there's other issues to talk about, but I, what I will say to that person is if you're struggling, that's a good sign. If you're hating sin, that's a good sign. If you want to do what's right and honor God, that's a good sign because that is characteristic of someone who is born again. And a lot of times when the people, the people come up to me and, and talk about that, it's the godliest people. It really is. It's the most mature people because those are the ones who are the most sensitive to sin. It's those people that are most aware about their sin and, and really want to get rid of it. So be encouraged. If you're in the fight and if you hate sin, this is assurance that you're born again, that you have a new heart. Romans 7 is the norm progressive sanctification is the norm. But if there's no fight, there might be something wrong. If you're reading chapter 7 and you're, you can't really relate to it, I'm, I'm not fighting here. And maybe you've been around here for three years maybe three months, maybe three weeks, and you just don't care about your sin. You're okay with it. You like it. Well, what's characteristic about a Christian is that they fight their sins. So I would humbly ask you to call into question your own salvation. To think through, if I'm really a believer, then why do I not want to follow Christ? Why do I not want to obey him? Because potentially, this is an indication that you're just playing church, that you're just showing up, but that you have not truly been converted. If you have this attitude of, well, I'm saved, then I can sin all I want. And I'm just going to enjoy this life and do all the sins that I want, and then God will take me to heaven. That is a dangerous thing to utter because that is not how a Christian thinks. A Christian is changed. A Christian has died to their old self and has been resurrected to new life. And so their desires are to honor God. Uh, so be very careful. And if you need help figuring this out, if, if you need help figuring out if you are a Christian, well, that's what our staff is here for, and we would love to sit down with you and talk about that. So that's the struggle. Secondly, let's look at the persistence of sin. We've looked at the struggle with sin. Now let's see the persistence of sin, verses 21 to 23. The persistence of sin is seen in one of the key words here, law. Now, so far, we've used it to describe the Old Testament laws or the Mosaic law, the laws found in the first five books of the Old Testament, and that's how Paul's using it so far in this text, and that's how he's going to continue to use it in these verses sometimes. For example, verse 22, the law of God, that's the Mosaic law, the law that God gave Moses. But sometimes, that's not what the word law means. Verse 23, for example, try to fit the Mosaic law there. I see in my members another Mosaic law waging war. Whoa, clearly not the case. Clearly doesn't fit. The word law is being used here in a different way. There's a different definition of the word law here. It refers not to a set of rules to obey, like the Mosaic law, but refers to a principle, a norm, or reality. 
those are words that you could use to understand it better. A principle, a norm, or a reality. Kind of like when we refer to the law of gravity. The law of gravity is simply a principle about gravity, a reality about gravity, a truth about gravity. That is, when you drop something, it's going to fall, and it's going to fall at a certain rate. So that's the way the word law is being used in some of these verses, like verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. I find it to be a principle. I find it to be a reality that when I want to do what is right, evil is close at hand. So he's describing a norm. He's describing a reality, simply the way things are. Whenever I want to do right, there is sin right behind me. There is sin lurking in the shadows. Genesis 4, 7 affirms this. God gives Cain a warning that we should all heed. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Now, there's this picture of sin as this wild animal waiting at the door, ready to pounce on you right when you exit, surprising you, catching you off guard. This is the reality of sin, the law of sin, that if you let your guard down, sin will pounce on you. It's always lurking, always looking for a weakness to attack. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Verse 22, Paul says, let me make it clear. I'm on God's side. I love the law. I love his word. In my inner man, in the deepest recesses of who I am, at the very bottom of my heart, I agree with the law, and I not only agree with it, I love it. I take joy in it. But in my members, or in my body, I see another law. And there's the word law again, not the Mosaic law, but another principle, another reality. The reality is I love the law, but there's another reality or another part of reality. And this is the principle or reality that he's already mentioned, which is the principle or reality of sin, the law of sin, that sin is always close at hand, ready to devour you. And this reality about sin collides with what he calls the law of his mind. Now, there's another law. Law of his mind probably refers to the Mosaic law here. The reason for that is verse 25. Take a look there. He connects the idea of the Mosaic law and his mind. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind mind. So he links the two, law of God and his mind. Also, this is anticipated in verse 16. Look there. I agree with the law that it is good, and there it's the Mosaic law. So really what he's saying here is that there are two competing laws. The reality that sin is always with me and obedience to the Mosaic law. And sometimes, which law wins? Sometimes the law of sin wins. End of verse 23. And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The presence of sin, the tyranny of sin, sometimes takes over my members, takes over my body. Sin takes my mouth, my ears, my eyes, my hands, my feet, my sexual organs, my brain, and makes them its slave. Notice the language of war in verse 23. I once was a prisoner of war, but I have been released. And I've, I've crossed back over to allied territory, but sin crosses that border and keeps kidnapping me and dragging me back and throwing me back into prison. But chapter 6 has given us the difference. This time when you're thrown in prison, that cell door is wide open. And you can walk out whenever you want. You have the power of the Holy Spirit to say no to sin. But sin will do whatever it can to kidnap you and drag you back. Sin is a part of who you are. Sin is a principle, a reality in the believer's 
life. As sure as the law of gravity exists, the law of sin exists in a Christian. Sin is persistent. I wish this wasn't the case, but I know it's the case in my life. Sin is persistent. If you were to transport me back to when I was a student, 14 years ago as a, as a freshman, and the year after that as a sophomore, and the year after that as a junior, the year after that as a senior, and I was sitting right where you are sitting, next to David Chow. And you were to ask me at that time, where do you think you'll be in your sanctification when you're 33? I honestly would have told you and given you some picture that is far beyond where I am now. Again, I, this sermon's for me. And I know that there are so many sins that I stro- still struggle with, and I would like to say that I'm, I'm far beyond where I actually am at. Uh, there's decisions I make uh, that are wrong, and I do them repeatedly. Uh, there are sins that I've struggled with for, for a long time, lifetime, and This is my struggle. This is my persistent struggle. And this is the persistent struggle of all Christians. You will struggle with sin until your death day. And I think if I were to, if we were to have this scenario where you could decide today never to sin again for the rest of your life, would you take that offer? Would you do it? All of us would. Because we're all thinking straight right now. We're all together as believers. We've gathered. We're in the word. And so if we had the opportunity, we would say, I'm done. No more sin. And we would live such a joyful life the rest of our days, enjoying perfection. But... You'll never have that choice. You'll never have that opportunity. This is the law of sin. This is the principle of sin. It is persistent. It follows you until the day you die. Now, if the passage ends here, that's pretty depressing. Uh, That would end on a downer. But Paul continues. Verses 24 and 25 Give us hope. Let's now look thirdly at the end of sin. The struggle with sin, the persistence of sin, and third, the end of sin. Verses 24 and 25. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Wretched man that I am. Wretched means unhappy, miserable, anguish. And not I stubbed my toe, not I did bad on this midterm. This is misery that comes simply from Paul seeing who he is. I'm a divided man, and this frustrates me to no end. The body of death is another phrase for the flesh. And just like we've seen throughout this passage, I'm trapped in this flesh. My sin nature enslaves me, it incarcerates me, and I can't get out of this. So who will set me free? Who will deliver me? Paul immediately answers his own question. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, the solution, finally. The deliverance, the salvation, the rescue. God himself provides the solution. It is his son, Jesus Christ. It is his son who is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. But remember, we're in the future tense here. Who will deliver me? 
We're talking about the future. Jesus will one day in the future come back and make all things right. Take us to heaven where we will be fully saved, fully delivered, fully rescued, saved to sin no more. Jesus is the one who will finally set us free and deliver us. He's already delivered us from the penalty of sin. And one day he will fully deliver us from the power of sin. Let me say that again. He's already delivered us from the penalty of sin. If you have believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven of all your sins. They are nailed to the cross, each and every one of them. There is no penalty. There is no condemnation for those who are now in Christ. But as we've seen here, sin still has some power over us. But there will be a day where it will not. There will be a day where the power of sin will be no more. And Jesus Christ will deliver us from sin's power. Jesus does what we could never do. The law cannot deliver us. Our good works cannot deliver us. Only the Son of God can and will deliver us fully and finally on that last day. This is our hope, guys. This is our hope. That one day the struggle will end. It's hard to imagine, right? It's hard to imagine. But how joyful, how glorious is that day going to be? As, as, as strong as, as the battle is, as, as hot as the, the heat of the battle is, one day it's, it's going to be no more. And Jesus is going to come back. And he's going to take us to a holy heaven where there is no more sin. There are no Roman 7 Christians in heaven. You're going to have a glorified body. Uh, this pesky sin nature is going to be ripped off of you. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Christian, are you tired? You're tired of fighting? You're tired of losing? Losing over and over again? There's going to be a day where you stop losing and you worship Jesus Christ in a way that you never have before. Perfectly without any sin holding you back. We struggle. And the struggle is persistent in this life, but one day we will struggle no more. Charles Spurgeon writes, sin is a monster and has immense vitality, but its back is broken. Its legs are broken. It is a broken-headed monster. There it is. It lies hissing and spitting and writhing capable of doing much mischief. But he who has wounded it will strike it again and again until at last it shall utterly die. Thank God it has not the vitality to get across the river Jordan. No sinful desire shall ever swim in that stream. We've had a, a taste of this victory. If you're a Christian, think back to a time where there was a lot of temptation. You, you, were, you were feeling the pull of sin. But by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, you said no. And you walked away. And you still kind of regretted. You're like, oh, man, I really still, really, really still want to do it. But after a while, you were so happy. You were so joyful. You had such peace in your heart. Seeing the grace of God marked in your life and being able to honor him as your heavenly father. Remember that? Even if victory is few and far between, remember those victories? That's a taste. It's a little taste of what is to come. When we are sinless, when we have our glorified bodies and we are saved to sin no more. 
But then verse 25 brings us back to earth, back to the present, back to the reality of the battle. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. There's that conflict again. God's law versus the reality that sin is always there and sin is always seeking to enslave. The struggle with sin is persistent. The battle's always going to rage on. The fight continues. So put on the boxing gloves and start throwing some punches. But fight with this new perspective. One day the fight's going to end. One day the fight will be no more. And doesn't that give us motivation? Doesn't that give us energy to fight the fight? This life is so short compared to eternity, compared to forever. This life is just a drop in the bucket. Can't we hang on just a little longer? Can't we hang on just a little longer? And can't we help each other hang on just a little longer until we're ushered into the presence of Jesus and the fight is no more until we enter that heavenly rest. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power resurrected as we will be when he comes.